done a few weeks in uh, Acts chapter 15, which is a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts. And it's kind of a halfway mark, um, you know, numerically, but also a halfway mark, uh, kind of an importance in ministry. The beginning of Acts is focused a lot on the church in Jerusalem and uh, how the Lord was uh, building up that church and some of the players, especially Peter, was an integral role in the church in Jerusalem. Um, and then shifting towards Paul and Barnabas and their travels. But Acts chapter 15 kind of got us to a place where we were able to stop and say, you know, uh, as the church expanded, as the gospel went out to the Gentiles, um, what did it mean to be saved? And after a person is saved, is there anything that is required of that salvation? Um, what does that look like? And uh, the Jerusalem Council, you know, the the was, um, I guess, brought together, it was the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, uh, to discuss whether the Gentiles needed to be circumcised, whether the Gentiles needed to start obeying uh, the law of Moses, um, because there was a group that was saying, hey, well now, you know, they've converted over, and if anybody converted into Judaism, this is what they were required to do. Um, Paul and, and Barnabas, they, they disagreed with that, and so the council came together and said, we don't place any more burden that is required of us onto the Gentiles. And it was a, a, a sense of freedom and encouragement to the church. Well, last week we looked at, uh, after Paul and Barnabas went back to Antioch and shared that with the group in Antioch, um, their kind of home church, which is north of Jerusalem, that they, uh, the, the people responded again with joy. Um, so Paul and Barnabas said, let's, let's, uh, let's go back out on the road. Let's go to the churches that we helped um, establish, you know, where we preached the gospel and churches through the Lord uh, were, were uh, formed. Um, let's go to check in on them and encourage them. And Barnabas said, let's bring John Mark, my cousin, along with us. He was back on that first missionary journey, and he didn't make it all the way, but let's bring him on this second one. And Paul uh, vehemently disagreed. So we looked at that, that you know, even, even uh, brothers in Christ can have differences of opinion on certain matters um, and kind of explored what that looked like. So unable to agree, Barnabas uh, heads to Cyprus. He takes his cousin John Mark with him, which is the last really we're going to see of, of them in Acts. And then Paul and Silas took another route. And so they went to, uh, to go to the churches that way. As we kind of think about our theme and what we're going to talk about today, um, I wanted to kind of talk about the idea of, of opening and closed doors. Um, how many would you say that you could look back on your life and see how the Lord kind of opened a door for a new opportunity, a new experience, something you know that, that you were like, yes, I could definitely see the Lord working in this way. Usually we can, we can see those, those uh, places in our lives that... Um, I met this person, and then he introduced me to that person, and then, you know, something happened, or, you know, um, uh, I was contacted by a group, you know, I, was, I had a, uh, ended up seeing a friend that we hadn't seen in about 10 years, he actually lives in California, we, when we lived in California, we went to church with him, and um, he happens to be training for a job out here, but it was interesting, as he was just kind of talking about how his job came about, it was like all of these things kind of opened up, and somebody contacted him and pursued him, and it was the right timing. Um, but sometimes, as we can look at the ways that the Lord has opened doors, have, has anybody can see that the Lord has definitely closed doors in their lives? You know, things that you want to pursue, things that you want to do. Does anyone have any, an example of maybe where the Lord closed the door, but it led to something that you saw was positive? 
we could probably all say everything, right? You know, <laughs> any closed door ends up leading to something positive. And the further you, away that you get from that closed door, that you actually see the Lord's hand working in that. But does anybody have an example you want to share? Like something concrete? Yeah. Yeah, I, was, uh, I worked for a church for five years. Mm-hmm. And I was terminated from that job, which was really, really hard. And then three weeks later, it was when David ended up being in his coma. And we are both unemployed for a year. And it was a very, very difficult year for both of us in many, many ways. And then while I spent time at Shepherd Center with him, getting to know the staff, they really started encouraging me, you would be a great match. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look for work again, you need to look here. And um, I don't have a clinical background, just education and, and ministry. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, my goodness, what am I going to be doing there? I'm not a nurse. I'm not a therapist, you know, physical therapist. Um, but then the position opened up. And I was hired as a family support services coordinator. So it was just beyond what I could ever imagine and just such a blessing to get to care for families that are going through what we have gone through. So that door closing just felt horrendous. Yeah. It didn't feel good. You know, we're in super difficult circumstances, but many good things came from that. That's just one. And the timing, right? You know, you're like, is this the right timing for all of this to happen? Uh, yeah, never, never good, never good timing for that. From a human perspective, right? But, but right in in how the Lord kind of you know navigated all of those things. And I imagine all of us have have those circumstances and those those issues. And sometimes, you know, an open door then leads to a closed door, which then leads to another open door. And that's kind of what we're going to see um, for here. Uh, the, you know, again, Paul and Barnabas, um, originally, when, uh, before their first missionary journey, it was uh, Paul and Barnabas and another, a group of uh, leaders at the church in Antioch. They were, they were praying, they were fasting. You know, that was a part of like, their coming together as leadership in the church. And they, um, the Holy Spirit kind of spoke to them and impressed upon them that you're going to set Paul and Barnabas up for a particular work and send them out. And so that was kind of a clear message that they heard, that Paul and Barnabas, you need to go out. In this sense, um, Paul and Barnabas are like, hey, let's, you know, from their own initiative, it appears, just the way that Luke writes, let's go and visit the churches that have already been established. And that's an easy one to do, right? Um, To go and plant churches and to go evangelize to those that um, haven't heard the gospel is you kind of want to have that sense of God like leading you or, or, or you know, pushing you a little bit. And that's kind of what they felt for that first one, where they would just go to places that they, you know, we don't know if they've never been there, but a church had not been established there. And so going to kind of new territory, it's easier to go, like, let's just go check up on them. You know, we don't have to, you know, we don't need God's approval for that. You know, if I'm not saying putting words in their mouth, but they can just say, like, that is going to lead us to, um, what what they're going to do. And so that's how we see God moving in this direction. So let's start in chapter 16. That uh, The end of 15 was Paul um, and Silas. So Paul and Silas split off from Barnabas and Mark, and they, they're kind of tackling their... If the first missionary journey could make a circle, uh, si, uh, uh, Barnabas and John Mark went this way. Paul and Barnabas are going to go kind of this way. And then... We don't know if they ever meet up or anything like that, but it would 
you typically think if they were continuing on this path, they would meet somewhere. But we don't have any knowledge about what happens. And so but they take the opposite r- r- route um, in order to get there. So in Acts chapter 16, we see Paul came also to Derby and Lustra, which they had gone through Syria and Cilicia. So Antioch, they're going up through Syria and Cilicia. They're going through Tarsus, and then they're going to make their way up kind of in the middle of Asia Minor. So you should imagine a map, kind of an oval is Asia Minor or Turkey, what we call today. Um, and so it says uh, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lustra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith. And they increased in numbers daily. Um, so again, that, that route that they're taking, if you go, Paul going, likely stopping through Tarsus, which was where he was from, um, uh, making their way um, over to Derby and to Lustra, uh, along what was called the Damascus Road, sometimes called the Royal Road, which was set up by the Persians, which kind of cut through, uh, straight through Asia Minor. We'll get back to that in a little bit. It was 240 miles as far as journey from Antioch to Derby on foot um, through some desert, through some rugged terrain, uh, some valleys and, and mountains. Um, and so making their way um, there and then to Lustra, which is about 50 miles from Derby. So almost 300 miles of travel to get to where they're going to. So it would have been a long, arduous journey in order to make it there. If you estimate, and typically they would say a person on foot travels about 20 miles a day, which would be a, a good, good long travel, that would have taken at least half a month to, uh, to make it um, to where they were headed. Again, probably stopping in uh, other places. We know they stopped in Syria. We know that they stopped in Cilicia, which would, Tarsus is where Paul was from, probably stopped there um, to kind of recoup and then to make their journey along the way. That's all it says as far as you know um, what they did there, although we'll pick up a traveler along the way. As a review, what happened in those two cities? You guys remember what happened in Derby? It was a positive. It was the very end of the first missionary journey. As Paul, they made their way up through Turkey. They made their way through those cities and got to Derby, and then they kind of backtracked and then came back and then sailed uh, back to Antioch. So when they made their way to Derby... Um, the only thing that we have uh, in Acts chapter 14 says that they made many disciples there. And so there weren't any negative events that happened, uh, at least that, that was uh, described by Luke, but that it was a positive experience. They made many disciples and then set up elders and then made their way back to do the same in the other churches. Now, Lucifer was a little bit different. That was where uh, Paul had healed a man um, who was crippled. And as a result of that, that they were worshipped as gods. They were worshipped as the, the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. And you can uh, go back and read about that if you want to do that. Um, Paul kind of said, hey guys, like, we're not Greek gods. We're, you know, we're just like you, but you guys need to turn from your pagan gods, your worthless gods. I mean, and Paul was pretty bold, you know, telling this to the high priest of Zeus who was there, um, that you need to turn from your worthless you know, beliefs and turn to the living God. 
Um, well, people that had come from some of the other cities they had visited encouraged the crowd to uh, kind of riot against them, and Paul was stoned and thrown outside of the city. So it was a, a, a huge, huge deal that happened there. You know, one of those things that when they went to Derby, the fact that they even backtracked and went back to that city was amazing uh, just on its own, to go back to a place that you had, you know, people had thrown stones at you and tossed you out. So it's been about a year or two later since those, those, that happened. Um, so definitely when they came back into town, they probably would have been recognized. <laughs> um, but things had died down. Some of the, the fervor had died down. Uh, but again, we don't know a lot of the details about what happened because Luke isn't really uh, interested in some of those things. One of the major things, though, we're going to start to see is not necessarily what happened, but who they meet. And we're going to see, start seeing a lot of who they meet along the way. So Acts starts getting a very personal as we come uh, you know, from some of these cities that we're going to, to travel through. Um, so it says that Paul wanted to take somebody with him. And who was that somebody? What's that? Timothy, right? So verse 3 says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Um, Timothy is going to be you mentioned in about six letters. Uh, he's going to have two letters actually authored to him. So Timothy is going to be not only an integral person for Paul's ministry that we'll know because of his references, but we're actually going to get some theology about church leadership and, and understanding about those things as Paul will later, he kind of takes Timothy along with him, but then later is going to drop Timothy off at different places and send Timothy out to go to different places on his behalf um, to help minister to certain churches. And then Paul's correspondence with him uh, is, again, influential for how we understand um, certain matters of the church. He had a Greek name. Timothy means uh, honor of God um, or God's honor. And so, uh, so even having that name is something that their family would have been a religious family. We know a little bit more about what that background was like, um, that he has a Jewish mother. Um, and uh, we don't get that in, in this, but we get that in 1 Timothy, that uh, his mom was Jewish, his grandmother was Jewish, and had a great uh, influence in him, uh, on his life and uh, who he would grow up to be. But having a Jewish mother and a Greek father meant to the Jews that it was, um, it was a non-legal marriage. It would have been legal if they were two Jews, you know, both coming from the faith. But being a non-legal marriage, that he would have, it would have cited that they would have looked at him as Jewish coming through the birthright of the mother. And so Jews would have seen him as Jewish. So on that sense, it was a positive for that. But because his dad was Greek, he wouldn't have had Timothy circumcised. And so Timothy ends up being kind of somebody who could relate to both groups, but never maybe accepted by both groups, um, either between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, we know that he was accepted by the church, and he has a, a strong relationship with the church, and so we see that as far as maybe why Paul um, you know, chose him, because now Paul is reaching out to Timothy. Uh, didn't want John Mark to come with him, but when he gets to this city, wants Timothy to come with him because of the reputation um, that he had and that other cities knew of him. He could be uh, a strength and an asset to the ministry as they continue along their way. That was one of the things about John Mark, right? Uh, Paul said John Mark didn't continue on to do the work. And so when he went to these other cities, they wouldn't have known him. They wouldn't have necessarily trusted him. 
And as Paul and Barnabas, now that they're split, but as they went to these cities where a lot of difficult things had happened, you want people that you can not only trust in, inside your team, but you want to be trustworthy to those that you're ministering to. Because they're, they're, you know, not only was Paul thrown out of the city because he was stoned, but the people that were left there um, would have then now had attention drawn on them. You know, again, think about, you know, we talked about a lot of these things, but imagine, again, if you come to faith, uh, it was under these kind of interesting and difficult circumstances, and as you stay there, the people that you know you have work with, that you you know are related to, they probably would look at you and give you some some uh, grief about the decisions that you've made and what you've decided to do and how you've decided you know to turn from your roots and now follow this Jesus. And so, um, so Paul wanted to make sure that as if someone's coming in along their ministry team, that they would have been able to minister to them and kind of understand the dynamic um, about what was going on and be somebody who was trustworthy. Now, since Timothy lived in the area and that was a major trade route, we see that he's actually going to be known to several of the other cities. Again, because of that coming and going from different people, they would have known who Timothy was. And so to him to step into those cities and to minister to them would have been easy to do. But Paul makes one decision. And so Paul says, um, wanted Timothy not only to accompany him in verse 3, but he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew his father was a Greek. Part of it was his name, but they would have also known he wasn't circumcised. It was just one of those things that people knew um, uh, if you were fully Jewish or, or not. Um, so why do you think... <clears throat> Why do you think that um, you know Paul had Timothy do this, especially if the Jerusalem Council said, you know, spoke directly against not needing the Gentiles to obey the Old Testament? So, what do you think? What do you think was going on? Some people say that actually Paul, um, you know, went against the Jerusalem Council and you know, had Timothy circumcised. So what, what would have been the benefit and is really what he's doing, um, is that end up being something that is uh, going to be a hindrance or do you think that would have been understood by the Gentiles as something that was helpful and necessary for the ministry? I think it was... <clears throat> Okay. So I think that it would remove one of those barriers and, and maybe even allow access into the synagogue some of the restrictions they had for Greeks in the synagogue. Okay. Definitely true. Definitely true. Okay. So as we as we think about that, I think that's that's definitely, you know, what Paul says here is because they're going to other places that Jews are with. How come the Gentiles weren't then told why, in, in order to remove a barrier, why don't you be circumcised? Zach, what do you think? I think something has to do with the fact that he was actually Jewish. Okay. Blood. Okay. So he was sort of this hybrid, and Paul wanted to give him access because he was actually Jewish. So the Gentiles, for them to do that would be like becoming a proselyte. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah. And so, so some of it is the circumstance in the background and the nature of who, who Timothy would be. We later find in, um, I can't remember what letter it is, but that t- Titus, I don't know if it's Galatians, but that Titus uh, was offered the same deal and he said no. Um, he's like, no, that's all right. And so the circumstances were different. But again, remember, just coming off of, like recently, in the last like couple months, he had just been in Jerusalem, they debated this issue. Do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? Do they need to obey the Old Testament? And our end result was no. But in the end of that, that didn't mean that Jews weren't still, that Jews that became believers in Christ, that they needed to shun everything from the Old Testament. That certainly was not going to be the case, and we'd see that that would not be the case in other places, that those who had Jewish backgrounds would continue to obey their Jewish backgrounds. And we talked about that as we talked about backgrounds that we have, like customs that we have and traditions that we have don't necessarily mean that once you become a believer, there are certain things like morally that we say, no, that, that you know, we don't do that anymore. But the other thing is, does not mean you have to abandon all of your heritage and all of your roots when you become a believer in Christ? What it means is that when you become a believer in Christ, that you are free to embrace those roots under the understanding of really who gave, who, the, who was the giver of those things. And so for the Gentiles, the Gentiles were told to not do certain practices that would be offensive, outwardly of, uh, offensive to those Jewish believers and those non-believers that would have, have kind of like caused a disunity within the church. So the Gentiles were told some things to not do, and we talked about that the last couple of weeks. But for the Jews... They were still free to kind of embrace their Jewishness. So it's one of those things that when we look at the whole crux of the issue was that the Gentiles weren't added these Jewish customs and traditions and burdens, that's kind of how they placed it, that they needed to now adopt in, in, uh, in addition to the things that, that they um, grew up knowing. Uh, but it was, no, Jews, you're free to be Jews. Gentiles, you're free to be Gentiles. Because now, if you, if you f- obey Christ, Christ is going to lead you to how you need, you know, what you need to do, how you need to interact with others, um, how you can love one another, and even to make personal decisions about things that you don't want to do that would be offensive to somebody. And Paul will write about that when he talks about those with uh, different conscience issues um, about certain matters. Um, but for this, for Timothy, you know, Paul said, I think it would be good for you to be circumcised because you aren't really accepted by either group. And so... Um, you have a Greek name, so there, you know, we're still going to call you Timothy. Um, it's, it's not like we're, we're going to abandon that issue. You, had a Greek, you have a Greek father. People know that. Um, it's you have a Jewish mother. You were raised to, to follow uh, these traditions and um, to be accepted a little bit more by those that we might minister to. You know, I'd encourage you to be circumcised, and it seems that Timothy accepted that and continued to do that. So it really doesn't go against anything that was said uh, in the Jerusalem Council. So whatever your roots were, you're not abandoning those roots necessarily. There are certain things that your religious practices please abandon because they don't reconcile with Christ. Um, but things as far as like customs and food and, and other things, you don't have to adopt a whole new diet. You don't have to adopt an entirely new lifestyle. Um, Christ can rule over all of those things. Does that make sense? So, so Paul was, was asked to be circumcised, and uh, because of the Jews, um, especially those that knew that his father was Greek and might be like, well, you're, you, know, you seem to know the Old Testament, but your father's Greek. How does that jive to get over that barrier 
To be circumcised would be something that he would be accepted, even though he didn't need to in the eyes of Christ. Um, So, what was the goal of this missionary journey? What was the goal of this missionary journey? You guys remember? When Paul and Barnabas first decided to have that in their head, they wanted to go and do what? They want to establish new churches? So, yeah. So, in this sense, they're, they're going for encouragement. And really, the section that we're going to see is that they're going to encourage others. And so, um, they first shared what was said at the Jerusalem Council. So, again, Paul would be talking about what was said at the Jerusalem Council and then having Timothy circumcised. If there was anything that really went against those two things, um, it would have been clear to Paul, especially, you know, the one who is sharing what the Jerusalem Council said. Now, the Jerusalem Council didn't say to go share with all the other churches, but Paul felt it necessary because everywhere that Paul went at those churches, there was a synagogue, or at least most of the places, which would mean there was a large Jewish population, which would have meant Jewish believers coming into the church, but also Jewish, um, you know, those that practiced Judaism that weren't in the church are outside in the community. And so he wanted to share those things that the Jerusalem Council said to provide unity within the church and also a good witness for outside the church. And so as a result of this and coming to these churches, how did, uh, how did the churches respond? Or what was the response within the church? Verse 5. Kind of three things that we see. Yeah. So they were encouraged, and they were strengthened. So this kind of see that. They were strengthened in the faith, and they increased numbers daily. That when burdens are lifted off of you, when you see the freedoms that you have to, to just worship Christ freely, um, that as a result of that, then your faith you know, is allowed to be alive. You embrace your faith and you share your faith. If you feel like your faith is a burden to you, you kind of keep it to yourself, right? If for some reason you felt like, I don't know, you know it's, pretty, it's weary to me, um, then you are going to share that with others. But as, as Paul was able to strengthen them, they're also not only free to do that, but they're also emboldened to go out into communities that rejected him, that we saw that, tossed him out of the city, chased him out of the city, threw stones at him. Um, and that wasn't just in one city, it was in several cities, that they are now emboldened to share with others. And as a result of those things, other people are drawn to the church. And they, the church increased in numbers as a result of that. So we can just stop there and say their mission was accomplished, Right. Their mission was accomplished. They now they added some new personnel, right? Timothy is now coming along with them. Um, and so as far as their aim to encourage the churches, they succeeded. They could probably turn around and head to Antioch. Um, but they don't feel like that's where they're stopping. And so we kind of move from a phase of encouragement to now a phase of exploration. Exploration. So verse 6 says... And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that Paul had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
So as they would have gone through, is there a mark around here? I know it's like, so I'll do kind of, if you have, if you have a, if you have kind of a map, like Asia Minor again is like a big oval. And they were like right in the center of Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. They would have called it Asia. And so they would have, um, that, uh, Royal Road, uh, which the Persians used and the Romans would have adopted, went through Troas, and then it was going to go kind of straight across over to um, the Mediterranean, and that would have uh, gone around where Ephesus was. And so instead of going straight through that way, it says that the Lord prevented them from going in that direction. So they were kind of moved up into uh to go north, so from that Antioch Pisidia, we talked about that is like kind of right there in the center. That they started to move north, and then they then they were either going to circle back up to get to kind of northern Turkey, which they were prevented from doing, and then they were going to start. They started to move south, and so they're they're kind of pushed further west, I guess in this sense. So here I know I'm doing this. They're actually going this direction from center Turkey out to the west um, to Ephesus. And just basically says, so if you can look at a map and uh, see, but the way that they turn, they're going to try to either follow various trade routes, um, the major one they were prevented from going, then they turn off, and then they were prevented from going that direction. So we see that they're, they're trying to find where does the Lord want them to go? Where does, where does God want them to be in order to start preaching the gospel? Really, I mean, they could go anywhere and preach the gospel, but for some reason they've been hindered um, in order to do that. And so it says uh, in verse uh, 6, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. That word forbidden in the ESV can also be translated as hindered or prevented. Um, forbidden kind of sounds like they got some sort of message that it was like, don't go there. Um, but whatever reason, circumstances, or uh, we don't see a direct vision right here, but whatever it was, kept them from going the route that they felt was natural, um, and maybe even in their minds, like, let's go to a major city. Let's go to Ephesus. Let's go there. And if you think about why they would want to do that, especially so far they've, they've stopped and planted churches along this royal road, that to continue along and do that process would just have been able to extend their reach. Remember, Timothy, it says that he was known in several of the cities uh, that were along that route, Every time you plant a church along a particular trade route, that would have just kind of encouraged, you know, unity amongst those churches back and forth. So it seems strategically would have been a good thing to do to kind of plant places along the way to kind of just broaden that network and then have places to launch out and to share the gospel from. But it says they were forbidden to do that, um, even though in their minds it might have seemed logical uh, that it, it wasn't able to happen. How do you think that might have played out? We have no idea. Okay, so there's no there's speculation, but we don't have no idea. Well, what are ways that the Lord prevents our plans? Like we have an idea, we think we're going to do it. What happens? It rains. It rains. Okay, it rains. That's a good one, right? And so when it rains, you know. It's one of those things that even rain can test our faith, right? You have this like thing planned out, and you know, but. How does the Lord want us to respond? With gratitude, right? You know, I guess this is the Lord. I guess the Lord wants us to have this event inside, or I guess the Lord doesn't want us to have this event. You know, and understand that, right? In the end, that we we plan our ways, but the Lord directs our steps. So rain would be definitely one, or some other natural phenomenon, weather, some other issue. What what other ways does the Lord prevent things from happening? Our plans. What's that? Sickness that happens. Does anyone have a plan? 
Anyone ever had like a planned vacation and had to cancel it because of being sick? No? Oh, look. You are anointed. The Lord, <laughs> Lord, Lord. <laughs> so, but there are times, uh, you know, I've had, uh, I remember, uh, I think, um, I think it was during our graduation, uh, Shane was supposed to come out and come to our graduation in, from seminary, but uh, he came down with an illness and that was sick, and I just he couldn't go on a, on a flight. I don't know why that kind of popped in my head. But sometimes that happens, right? You know, you have a plan, what you're going to do, and you're like, I just can't because I'm sick. Um, other, other things, you know, those seems kind of natural. Other things happen, you know, where maybe traveling, especially during this time, when we were in um, uh, Honduras, um, Two summers ago, uh, we were traveling. It was like we were going to stop and stay at a, a place along the coast, which wasn't too far from the airport, um, just to kind of have a fun day and then leave the next day. Um, but as we were leaving, uh, they decided to have, um, I don't know what you call it, like, I don't know, not riots, but plant strikes, I guess. Uh, what are planned riots? I guess they're called strikes. Um, so, and I can't remember who was striking, but what they would do is they would pile rocks and branches up on the highways and just like light fires, you know, and, and just basically like protest. And so we got to this place where we were like, is it normally traffic like this? It was like, oh no, something's happening. And then, you know, you find out that the road's been closed. Sometimes the police would try to intervene, but sometimes they would just stay out of it until, you know, the people got tired and, and they, could, they could disperse. Um, but it was happening at different places all around the country where they were closing up certain highways. So we were probably stopped up for an hour, but you know, the bus driver was like, well, sometimes it's you know, a short amount of time or sometimes it's days. And you're like, days? Like, we can't even get to the airport this way. So fortunately, the Lord you know, allowed us to open up that road, and when we did kind of drive past it, there were like debris and rocks that were in the road and you know, trying to make their point. But those times, things happen. I remember on our honeymoon, uh, we were planning to go to a different city, and uh, you know, Sarah, as we were passing through the town, she's like, I'm hearing something about, was it a strike as well? Something similar. And they shut the power off that night, which shutting the power off at night, it's kind of an easy, you know, it was like a soft strike, you know, because <laughs> you're like, ah, we're sleeping anyway. But they shut the power off, you know, in the country or at least this region. And it was the same thing. We didn't know if we were going to able to make our plans the next day. But at that time, you can see that, you know, there's different things that could happen that would just prevent them from making their way. And they saw it as weather, sickness, whatever it is that the Lord is preventing them from going in a particular direction. They could have pressed on and said, you know what, maybe we'll find a different route. We really need to go to Ephesus. But they just saw, like, the Lord is, it seems to be directing us a different path. So we'll change course and we'll make our way um, to a different place. So it says they made their way to uh, Mysia, which was northwest Asia Minor, kind of, you know, closer to the coast, and then down to uh, Bithynia. Um, and again, they tried to go, you know, another route to go a different way. And uh, it says this time, instead of the Holy Spirit, it says um, that the Spirit of Jesus, verse 7, did not allow them. The Spirit of Jesus. Here, it, like Luke is, and then we're going to actually see in verse 10, uh, that God has called us to somewhere. In a few short verses, we see like the Trinity at play right in these verses, especially as how they're directing their steps um, to prevent them or to call them. So the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, we see two members of the Trinity right there, intricately involved in what they are doing and where they are headed. And so there's no difference there. Um, you know, Not sure again how that happened, but this time the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go into this area. Again, Luke can write 
past tense uh, as he talks about these things, understanding these things. Are they as aware? Um, maybe it's just, you know, I don't know. Well, I guess we have to go this way instead. Um, but again, it, it goes a lot easier if you're understanding that the Lord is working in the present, not just, oh yeah, he was working in the past. So they make their way to Troas, which is due west of Mysia, on the coast of Asia Minor. Um, it's associated with the city of Troy, uh, you know, in Greek mythology. Um, and uh, while there, they get, he gets a vision in the night, possibly a dream, because it specifically says a vision, and that vision is at night. Um, but in some sense, some think it's actually like a vision of Jesus himself. Um, and some, you know, think it's, it's uh, something else. What was it of? What was it of? What was it? What's that? It says a man, right? And a man from where? From Macedonia. A man from Macedonia was calling to him. Um, there's a few kind of, some, some think fancifully that, uh, well, well, we'll talk about this, but, but uh, Macedonia is uh, Philip of Macedon, um, who we'll see is, Philippi is named after, and that's kind of the city that they go next. Some think it's a vision of Philip of Macedon. He had a vision of world conquest, that there would be one rule, and that his son kind of picked up that idea, who was Alexander the Great, of a one-world rule, that it would all be Greek, and uh, that was one reason that they all spoke Greek wherever in those cities, um, because when Alexander the Great went to different cities, he Hellenized them. He tried to uh, instill Greek culture into them, and one of those things was the languages. So as a positive from that one-world vision, uh, we had a common language that was able to be spoken in that area. Some think, you know, oh, maybe it was Philip of Macedon that is coming to call him, that this one world would not be a Greek world, would be a world under Christ. Uh, that would be kind of nice, you know, fantasy, but we have no idea. Uh, but some, some think that. But all it says is that there's uh, some Macedonian man. I'll, I'll tell you what the other belief is in, in just a second. Um, and what did this man want? What did he want? He called for help. He called for help. That's kind of an interesting thing, right? You know, that uh, he says, help us, help us. What does that, what does that conclude? You know, what was, what's Paul, how can Paul help? Okay, he could strengthen the faith of the believers who were there. Um, we don't know as far as if any church had been established in those areas. So if there are, it could be a man who's there that is in, in, in that area that's like, hey, help us, I'm alone. So it could, be, it could be that to strengthen them. It could be what? As well. If there is no church, what does that mean? What's that? Plant one. So how is that a help? Okay. In short, it could be like a distress call, like, you know, we need you. And so this Macedonian man represents those, all who are in Greek, who are outside of Christ, that, that please come and help us because, you know, we're lost in our... In, and as we start getting to these areas, uh, a little more central to Greece, we'll start talking about a little bit more of the different belief systems uh, that are developing, but largely in darkness in those areas. Um, not that they weren't in Asia Minor, but you at least had some synagogues set up that were 
you know, speaking of a one God, but when you get to other areas where, you know, paganism, which multiple gods and multiple beliefs um, reign, that darkness uh, is, is even stronger there. And so, um, so it was a cry for help. Now, what would be important about Macedonia? Macedonia is just north of Greece. And so there's like a little land strait that, you know, a chain of islands. I think it's a, a land strait that goes, uh, connects Asia Minor to this other body of land. What would that other body of land be called that we call today? It's one of the continents. Starts with an E. <laughs> Europe, yeah. And this is kind of, you know, one, you could say, well, centrally, like, Greece was a major um, empire and had its influence in a lot of areas. And so you get to Greece, and then your next stop is Rome, which is the reigning empire of that day. But it also represented a, tra- a movement from Asia to now to Europe um, because they called, you know, Turkey Asia Minor, and that this other area would have been, you know, this other landmass that was somewhat separate. The only connection was a, was a little bit of a strait of, um, of land that connected them. And so you've kind of now moving, as Jesus, remember, said early in chapter 1, that you need to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is just continuing to extend those fingers to the ends of the earth. Now, who joined them on this trip? Who joined him on this trip? Luke. Luke. How do we know that, Zach? First person plural. It's subtle. It's subtle. So all you English people in here, well, all of you speak English, but all of you, you know, who like uh, embrace the language and the intricacies of the language that we first start to see, right? Verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. And we start seeing this idea about we and us, um, that is being described uh, here. Before it was they. They were going here. So when we have us, who's included in the us, the author of this letter, and the author of this letter is Luke. And so at some point, most, most believe that it's around this time that Luke is picked up. Now traditionally Luke is, um, has been, by tradition, associated with Antioch, and there was a Lucian that was in the church in Antioch, and most think that that is, is Luke. And that maybe as Paul was given this call to go to Europe, that he might have you know, wanted a little bit more help, maybe a doctor to go along with them um, that would go as they're getting further and further away from Antioch. You know, some think that Luke was from Troas, but it becomes a little bit difficult to say that. Um, one, he would have already had to have been a believer that Paul, remember, was hindered from sharing the gospel, so he wouldn't have been a new convert. He also wouldn't have been somebody that likely a new convert would not have been asked to come along with him. Timothy had been a convert for some time and already gained a reputation um, to go on the ministry with them. Um, But some do think, well, now we're starting to see Luke picked up, and now it's us, and that he was picked up there. So whether he met them there or whatever reason, we start seeing Paul uh, Luke being described. Others would actually say that there is some precedence with when they go sailing, uh, that Greek cultures uh, and the language that they would use the first person for sailing, I don't know why. That travel by land, you tend to talk in the third person. Um, and Greek writers did often talk in the third person when referring to themselves. And that when you got on a boat, you said, we, <laughs> we go on a boat for whatever reason. So it's possible Luke had been with them. We just have no indication of that. But it's at this moment that we do know that Luke is along for the ride. And so that as he gets, goes on the next leg of the journey, that he is going to be with them. 
And so, so far, they're just trying to find the next place to be. And the Lord is working in these events, and He's ever-present as they're working through these events. And so I want to kind of finish this out um, with this next section, because I want to spend a little bit more time on what we're going to see next. So now we're going to see now the church starting to expand. So we've seen encouragement at the previous churches that were um, established, an exploration of where to go next and where to share the gospel. Again, they're encouraged to continue, to go further away from their home base in Antioch, that the Lord has pressed upon them to keep going, to keep sharing, but they just haven't found that place where they are able to do that. And now they found a place that the Lord has opened up a door um, for the ministry. So verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothraki, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside to the gate uh, of the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, Samothraki was an island between Asia Minor and Macedonia, so just off the coast. Um, it would have just been a stopping place. Uh, it would have been connected um, you know, with, uh, with the, the islands um, surrounding Greece. Um, you know, a lot of those in the history of Greece, uh, a lot of those little small islands were connected with, with uh, Greece as well. And you can read about all these different leagues that were formed for uh, certain wars, a part of their history. But that was one of them that they stopped along the way, is kind of directly on their route to Macedonia, which is in northern Greece. And then they made their way to Neapolis. Neapolis means new town. It was a central port of uh, Philippi. Um, just a few miles away, and that's the town that they're going to end up. And so um, sailing must have been good. You know, the Lord must have really been with them because when we see them travel back in Acts chapter 20, it will take them five days to make their way from Neapolis to um, Troas, where it only took uh, presumably two days. They sailed directly, and the next day they were in Neapolis. And so whether it was the... Uh, the, the currents were with them, or the wind was with them, um, that the Lord was getting them there quickly. And so, why Philippi? Well, it says in verse 12 that it was a, a, uh, a leading city of the area. It was founded by Philip of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's father. Uh, it was a Roman colony, which meant that they had um, a right to self-governance, that they weren't taxed, and that they were able to own land freely. And so they were given a lot of freedoms, um, usually because they pledged their allegiance and they were very pro-Roman um, in, in the way they acted. And so, so that's kind of the, the nature of the city. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week as it, it pertains a little bit more to what we're going to talk about, uh, what's going to happen there um, next week. Or, well, I'll get to that. On the Sabbath... Where did they go? So it says it's the Sabbath, and they headed to a particular place. Where did they head to? Normally on the Sabbath, Paul would go to where? What's that? Where would they go? The synagogue. Yeah, and we kind of made that point that everywhere he went on this first missionary journey, they would go to the synagogue, they would teach, 
Um, early on, they were like, hey, come, come teach. You know, we, we, we hear you're a rabbi and, you know, come say something. And he would. And we use that platform to then uh, talk about Jesus. Um, but here, they don't go to the synagogue. And so we would presume that there is no synagogue. Um, because, where does it say that they go? What's that? Yeah. So they went outside to the gate to the riverside where we suppose there was a place of prayer. Um, if there wasn't ten men inside the city, to, ten Jewish men inside a city to set up a synagogue, that was kind of the, the formation of a synagogue, was a gathering together. That's what a synagogue means. And so that there needs to be at least ten men. So that means that there wasn't ten men. And from this gathering, we see only women uh, that are gathered. Um, according to rabbinic tradition, and the MacArthur Study Bible kind of has a note in there that... Um, if there wasn't a synagogue, then you would set up a uh, place of prayer outside the city near a river or sea and under the open sky. And so presumably they're like, we'll go check it out. There wasn't a place that was a synagogue set aside as a gathering place for Jews during uh, you know, their Sabbath. So we'll go outside and find out if there is one. One of the reasons is if there was an established synagogue, Romans were very wary about certain religions and uh, if they would be considered cults. And so if there wasn't something established inside the city, then you would have been considered an outside cult. And so better to meet outside the city um, you know, as a gathering and find a gathering place for prayer on, on, you know, on the Sabbath. So when he goes, he goes down, he sits with the, the women and he speaks with them and uh, shares with them, uh, you know, we don't know the details about what was shared, but we know the response. And so one of the women uh, that was there that responded to what Paul had to say, uh, her name was Lydia. So Lydia um, is from a city called Thyatira, which is a Roman province back in Asia Minor, basically straight across uh, the sea. And it was known for making purple dye. And that's what we see that that's her profession. It was actually her name is from the area and the region uh, of Lydia, which is where Thyatira was. So she was probably picking up a family business, something that, um, you know, was, she had, happened to be named after in a place where purple dye was made. Early on in Phoenicia, uh, the Phoenicians used uh, little small shells and crushed them up. And it was a, la- a laborious process, but they were known for... Uh, purple dye, and that's what Phoenicia actually means, is, is purple dye. And so it ended up being something, because it was such so hard to make, that it was very desirable, um, not only for the color, uh, but it was a desirable dye to be used. And so it was usually associated with royalty and would command a premium. And so we know a little bit about her background um, and a little bit about where she's from. Um, and it says that she was a worshiper of God. Now, typically, when you see that worshiper of God, we've seen that in other places. What did that refer to? We would say a person who worshiped God, but what did, that, what did it mean a little bit more? So, somebody worshiped the true God. Someone who worshiped the true God that would have been meeting, you know, to look at the Old Testament scripture at that time. So, usually, it would have been seen in the synagogue. It would have been open to coming to the synagogue, but would also have been understood as being what? What's that? Well, so, did you say Jewish? 
So Jewish in that sense, but also um, when you use that term worshiper of God, might not be in a full convert, a proselyte, because the same term was used about Cornelius, um, and likely he hadn't been circumcised to be a full proselyte. So she might have been looked at, again, as somebody who was follow, seeking God, following God, doing the things under the Old Testament law, but not have gone all the way through to been seen as a proselyte. But it's, just, it's noted that she is a worshiper of God and that they have come to the right place and are speaking to the right place. So how is her coming to faith described? It's kind of interesting the way that Paul or that Luke kind of writes this. So the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, right? So at some point, you know, whatever Paul's saying that she is responding to, and in the way that she responds, Paul then does what in verse 15? Baptized her. Baptized her. And again, we see that those two often go hand in hand, that when a person comes to faith, that then they are immediately baptized. It says she and her household. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. So what happens next? What happens next is that after she's baptized, she immediately invites a stranger <laughs> who shares the gospel with her to stay with her, she and her entire household. So one, because of her profession, she likely has a house that, can, that will end up being, you know, most think that it's, it's her house that ends up being the, the place where the Philippian church ends up meeting. Um, and that she's got a place that Paul and her, his three companions, at least, the four of them, can stay. And she urged him. It says she prevailed upon us, which uh, that word is, is kind of interesting, um, that it means to force violently can be, can be translated that way. So strongly urged them, like, you need to come and you need to stay with me. And so it's an offer that they, they can't refuse, and they say they end up staying with her. And she says, stay with me. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my house. And it's basically an invitation that I want you to come and stay with me, see if what I say is true, if my profession is true, and I want you to be here. And she knew that, that these men would be able to continue to feed into her and encourage her and strengthen her. And we'll see where that goes a little bit later um, as we pick this up. Uh, in two weeks. Uh, next week I'll be out of town, so Tim is going to be teaching, um, but we'll pick this up in a couple weeks. So anyway, I wanted to kind of cover, I know it was a lot of ground to cover. Um, next week we'll only be in Philippi. Actually covered a lot of ground mileage-wise <laughs> from Paul's journeys. Um, but we're going to look at, uh, the next time we meet, um, a, a way that the Lord miraculously saves a man uh, in despair and brings him to faith. But hopefully as we step back and see is like Paul is moving one place to the next. They've got an idea about where they want to go and what they want to do. And then the Lord kind of presses upon them to keep going. And so they're, they're kind of doing that out of their own desire. But then the Lord closes some doors and then opens up a door here. And the timing was perfect. They were able to be there on the Sabbath to meet this woman. We see her. We know what her name is. We, don't, we only see her one more time in Acts. And after that, we don't see her name anymore. But we we're pretty sure that she's foundational to being an instrument in housing the church in Philippi. So um, we see that this is like this meeting is again not just by coincidence, but how God ordained through closed doors and some open desires to meet her and then share the gospel with her. And then we're going to see what happens next uh, next time um, with another miraculous moment. How a Lord will save a particular man in a pretty amazing way. Is there any uh, closing comments?